You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following paragraphs are from Chapter 4 of a fanfiction titled Obligation to Keep, written by today's guest fanfiction writer, Blackout42. There was something terribly familiar about her last few lines. He didn't know how it was possible, but she had perfectly described a feeling he had when he had been forced to do eviction contracts on civilians who had tried to skirt from their dues to the corporations. People in rags, living in filth, regardless of age, gender, or ability to resist. Families and their friends terrified of him, all of them shouting, pleading, begging. Him just firing and firing and firing and firing and firing till they stopped moving, and collection drones took the corpses for reprocessing. There was no thrill, no challenge in hunting the innocent, no honor but to complete a contract that granted him no further rank, except to be the corporation's lowest, groveling dog for hire. Their faces twisted in fear and terror, the silent screaming deafening beyond compare, all burned into his mind as the greatest insult the corporation saw fit to bestow to one of his caliber of skill. As for the rest of the poem, the imagery was not lost on him. The choice use of words conveyed a desperation, one born of unstable and uncertain mind. He looked up at Sayori, smiling eagerly. Which was the real Sayori? The girl smiling sweetly before him, or the one who wrote this, who put into words that void of dread he felt for hunting the weak with barbaric cruelty? This is... really great, James complimented as well as he could, haunted at how deep her words cut into his memory. Thank you, Sayori cheered. Monica taught me a whole lot, and I've been really in touch with my feelings lately. It is unusually dark for you, though, James asked, in mild concern. Well, Sayori started, blushing with a distant look in her eyes. I feel like I was meant to express myself this way... It even helps me understand my own feelings a little bit better. I do like happy poems, but I like sad poems too, Sayori explained, looking deep and thoughtful. Sometimes a little bit of both. There's a word for that, right? Sayori paused concerningly. What's the word I'm looking for? Bittersweet, she shouted happily. Yeah, I like things that are happy and things that are sad. You're quite passionate about this then, asked James curiously. Yeah. Writing is the best, she shouted happily. I'm going to keep writing until I die. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world... Greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Before we proceed with today's show, I must give a shout out to the Retro Fanfic Retrospective Podcast. This is a book club style podcast that features discussions on retro fan fictions written and published prior to 2006, which I think is such a wonderfully unique concept. The team behind Retro Fanfic Retrospective is absolutely amazing. 
I recently had the opportunity to make a guest appearance on the Retro Fanfic Retrospective podcast to talk about an older A-Team fan fiction, and that episode should most likely be posted by the time that this episode here is released. Amato is unfailingly kind and does a tremendous job steering the ship. Tori is so much fun to talk to. They bring a wonderful lit crit background to the table and their perspective adds perfect context to the discussions. Dom is the tech mastermind behind Retro Fanfic Retrospective, and she makes sure that the episodes are recorded properly and edited. The show sounds great. I had a fantastic time talking shop with her, and I'm grateful for the expert pointers that she so graciously provided. Huge thanks to the Retro Fanfic Retrospective team. You can find their show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, etc. So go listen to the episode that I'm on if you fancy reminiscing about the A-Team. Make sure you check out the other episodes they have posted too because they are all a lot of fun. Sarah with Talkin' Fanfic was also a recent guest there on the show prior to my appearance, so you'll find her there too, along with a lot of other really great guests. My point in all of this is that the world is full of beautiful people doing beautiful things, and I am just happy to be along for the ride. So speaking of beautiful people, our special guest fanfiction author for today is Blackout42. He has been a member of AO3 since 2021 and has one Armored Core slash Doki Doki Literature Club crossover fic posted there, which we will be discussing today. Blackout42 is an avid gamer, a full-time security guard with a crippling cheese addiction, and he hails from the sun-bleached shores of Southern California. Blackout42, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome to the show, man. How are you? Thank you. Uh, it's good to be here. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on today. I have to know, with your crippling cheese addiction, what kind of cheese are we talking about? Most of them, honestly. Sometimes even the pre-cheese where it's just milk. I'll just drink a lot of milk. And then I'll do a lot of cheese too. If it's on a pizza or it's in a burrito, I'll usually eat it and then critique it. And I'll be like, oh yeah, I'm going to have more of this. Or just most of them. I'm honestly just so bad. I just... It's more the ones that just taste good. I don't really think about what they're called. <laughs> it's all good. I'm like that too. If it tastes good, I will want more of it. And I will never remember what the name of the stupid cheese is, but it's all good. <laughs> so thank you again so much for being here today. I am curious to know how you discovered fan fiction for the first time. What was that like? Sometime between 2010 and 2011, I got my first iPhone and I was looking up for additional content or anything regarding Avatar The Last Airbender, because I, I never really finished that until I was actually an adult. And I somehow, in searching for that, ended up in fanfic.net, and I found a whole lot of just different interesting stories of different things people had written. And I was like, wow, this is a very interesting place. And since then, I've been pretty much addicted to fanfiction. I've spent, I can spend hours a day reading it. Back when I was had nothing better to do, I could do 50,000 words a day. And right now on my phone, I have no less than 300 tabs open just to fan fiction. Oh, my God. You win the fan fiction tab contest. Before the show, we were laughing because I have legit probably about 42 tabs open on my computer right now. And it's all AO3. But 300 tabs. Damn. <laughs> That's amazing. 
When you first started reading fan fiction, I know you said that you were reading for Avatar The Last Airbender. Were there other fandoms that you were reading for as well? I've gone to them slowly, picking up stuff as I found it. Usually, like if I remember a franchise or a series, I'll, I'll start reading on that. So I got, uh, I can't really remember what I was reading back then. It would have been mostly games. But, you know, as time goes on, I pick things up. So I'll, I'll start opening Halo because I saw a Halo video or uh, I resaw an anime and I'll start opening up fan fiction for that anime. I just recently started watching another show and I'm going to like, hey, I wonder if there's fan fiction for that. So just keep going is basically how it goes. <laughs> I love that because that's exactly the way that I am. I don't tend to discover new shows very often just because I don't have a lot of time to watch TV or, or whatnot. But every time that I discover a new show that I'm really into, the first thing that I do is I go online and I search for the fan fiction, right? Because <laughs> yeah. you're just so curious to see what people are writing about it and you just want more of it. So I totally relate to that 100%. Now, I want to know what inspired you to want to become a writer. It was two different times that I, I was inspired to start writing. The first time was in 2015. I had a best friend who introduced me to a show called Ruby. And around about the same time, I started picking up Armored Core games and playing them on his PS3. Since both IPs were primarily about combat to some greater or lesser extent, I had the interesting idea of trying to combine them into a story. I wrote 11 chapters of that story, but then kind of gave up around 2017. In 2019, I got really bored one day, and I decided to play Doki Doki Literature Club for the first time, and I was just instantly taken in by the depth and complexity of the characters. In August 2019, I had the next most brilliant moment, was to reuse the OC I had made for the previous story, and use him in this story where he meets those Doki girls. And immediately, these two separate ideas armored core and doki doki started to synergize and i found ways to combine the horror elements and i ran with it and two years later here we are now oh that's awesome and we'll talk more about armored core and doki doki later on in the show i didn't know what doki doki was so i did end up doing a little bit of research to just kind of try to figure out what that was and i was fascinated to discover that it's uh it's like a horror game online yeah. and everything and and I was like, oh, this is so interesting. We'll talk more about that as the uh, episode progresses here. But um, I wanted to go back a little bit to something that you said when you first reached out to me. I, I want you to know that I was so touched by what you said. You mentioned a few ways that fan fiction writing has had a positive impact in your life, particularly with your family relationships. And I was hoping that you could expand on that for us a little bit, whatever you're comfortable sharing. So this requires a little bit of a backstory. School has always been difficult for me. I've always kind of procrastinated and not really pushed myself to do much in school. Sometimes I'd even do essays on the day they were due. I was so bad. And high school, I managed to just kind of get through. It was a bit handholdy, so I ended up with an above-average score. But in college, the handholding stopped, and my scores went straight down. And that combined with my inability to hold a full-time job until this year, it just made it very difficult to interact with my parents. My mom always supported me, but I always kind of disappoint her and put her off by just being too lazy to try and help myself. 
And dad, it was always just difficult trying to relate to my dad because he wanted me to do so well and he loved me so much, but I was not trying at all. And that really disappointed him. While I'm on that tangent, I wrote my first story. And while my mom supported me, she just needed to take a break because it would get too long for her. And my dad, he could never be bothered to finish the chapters of that story. It was not interesting enough for him. I had rewritten my OC and fleshed out the world he came from and used the Doki Girls to build these new interactions. And I cannot express to you the joy I felt when I wrote those first few chapters. And my father didn't just like it. He was utterly enthralled by what I had written. My parents are now my biggest supporters in this new story. And every chapter I put out, I'll call them up and we'll have an hours-long conversation about what they liked. And my dad will throw out suggestions for what he would want to see and where he thinks it'll go. I honestly feel that in these last two years, I've connected more with my father than the previous 20 years before. And I just think that that's so beautiful. That touched me so much when you told me that. I've been involved with fan fiction for a really long time. I've been reading it 24 years. And I know from personal experience that fan fiction can have beautiful impacts on our real life. And I just, I loved this, that fan fiction for you has helped you kind of reconnect with your family a little bit and, and really kind of strengthened that bond between you and your dad. And I think that's so beautiful. Yes, I'm definitely happy myself because we did have so many things that we have in common. We like a lot of the same stuff, but I never felt comfortable speaking about those things because I could just never achieve anything else. And if it straight into those things, I didn't want to just say I'm trying or I'm doing my best, whereas now I can say I am doing my best. I think that that's just so cool that you get to bounce ideas about the story with your family and, and have long conversations with them about it, because this story certainly does lend itself to some really intense, deep conversation for sure. (laughs) And we'll get into that here in just a few minutes. I was wondering if you have shared your fan fiction writing with others in real life outside of your family. I have tried to. My best friend has never read it per se, but she is forced to listen to all my comments and rants about how I'm going to write a scene or what's going to be coming next in the story. She knows more about what will happen than anyone else. And I trust her implicitly with that information. Oh, that's so awesome to have at least one person, right? That you can confide in and bounce ideas off of. And it sounds like she's your cheerleader. She's at least supportive. I'll give you that. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. We all need at least that one person who can support us. So that's really awesome. Aside from the positive impacts that fan fiction has had in your life, what are your other thoughts and opinions on fan fiction as a general concept? Like, what do you love the most about it? Why do you think fan fiction is important? I think it's a very wonderful thing when done well. Some stories I've read are good, but very simple, which is fine. And other stories uh, do something weird or character breaking or have a poor format, and I'll just lose interest in it immediately. But some stories are gold, so wonderful and imaginative and explorative of concepts and possibilities. It's amazing. One of my favorite stories that I'll talk about later really inspired me to rewrite my original character. It doesn't even have perfect grammar, but just the concept that is presented is so sound and well thought out. It helped me to improve my own writing and be more in depth with my characters. Fan fiction 
is important as we can spend more time with our favorite characters as they go through new experiences, sometimes in new settings, and with new people. It's a really fun medium, and I plan to continue writing more stories when I finish this one. Good. I'm so glad that you have plans to continue with your writing career and fan fiction because your story is great. I'm really loving it. We absolutely are looking forward to more. It sounds like you really enjoy fan fiction, especially for its capacity for creativity. I can tell that you're a very creative person. Yes. I like a lot of the ideas where it's something unexpected or subversive. I definitely love subversive elements. Those are some of the best, I think. Oh, I love that word, subversive. And we can definitely see those subversive elements in your story as well. I can't wait to talk about it. Your current fic project is a fascinating crossover between Armored Core and Doki Doki Literature Club. For those who are unfamiliar with those fandoms, can you briefly describe what those are and then tell us what you find interesting about them? Yes. To speak of Armored Core and Doki Doki Literature Club is really best done by speaking about two men and their vision. Dan Salvato created DDLC out of a deep love-hate relationship with anime and visual novels. He found lots of enjoyment with some, but found others to be wholly lacking and uninspired. So, he set forth to create a visual novel that was both compelling and subversive. It should be noted that he was not the first to develop a subversive visual novel, but the depth and realism of the characters helped popularize them. I myself was fascinated when the characters spoke about their own feelings or problems and found that they are exactly like mine. It is a deeply personal story about friendships and struggles, not just in high school, but in any moment of our lives we find ourselves. The four girls... Monica, Sayori, Natsuki, and Yuri are so well written that it is easy to find people with their traits in real life. The Armored Core franchise started in 1997 and got through 11 games before Hidetaka Miyazaki joined the From Software studio. The Japanese action mech shooter had always done reasonably well, but Miyazaki's input had drastic changes to gameplay and story. Some of the earlier games had the idea that the rebelling AIs of the future were in fact, the good guys trying to save the human race. But Miyazaki injected his own blend of dark fantasy into the game, with Armored Core 4, the first game he directed, taking place in the middle of a man-made Armageddon. His next game, For Answer, had a distinction of having three different endings, which were really just different flavors of how responsible the playable character was for committing a genocide, being by accident, by proxy, or on purpose. About this time, the much more popular Dark Souls series would be released that, along with the game Bloodborne, represented some of Miyazaki's beautiful and horrific imagination. The final two games of the Armored Core series, being Five and Verdict Day, did not have the multiple endings possible in the other games, but did feature a similarly sad theme of soldiers abandoning their humanity in order to become stronger fighters. I liked both the fast-paced action of the combat as well as the dark and terrible undertones of the story. The final boss of the series, a super soldier named Jay, has a short speech that resonates through the entire series. There is no place for me other than the battlefield, to live as I please and die a senseless death. That is who I am, not a mere man of flesh. War is part of my existence. 
Ooh, I like those tremendously. I really love the concept of both of those fandoms because we were talking a little bit before the show about what genre we felt like your story falls into, and we decided that it's science fiction horror. I feel like both Armored Core and Doki Doki Literature Club fall into that horror category somewhat. Would that be fair to say? Doki Doki definitely does. It's technically psychological horror, although the plot of the game originally could lean into the sci-fi horror and its later elements. And Armored Core, it's more implied. Nothing is ever said about the people on like how they live or how the main characters go about their day-to-day lives when they're not fighting. But there's a lot of imagery implied of different slums against the shadows of megastructures of the past, or there are implications of the League of Ruling Corporations. They have like the, the systems set up where it's like the Pax Economica. I only mention it once in the story, but it's the idea that they've achieved global peace by overthrowing the government. And it's all just a lie because they're all already planning to go to war with each other anyway. So it's like, it's all just very surface level and grandiose. Yeah. And Armored Core takes place in the future? It's difficult to describe the timeline of things because it's the 15 games are divided in three timelines and then one outlier game where it doesn't take place anywhere. The first couple of games are one timeline. The entire third series is another timeline. And then the last four games are in another timeline. I've sort of combined them so that they all kind of pile up and have similar themes. But otherwise, they aren't not technically meant to take place one after the other. Ah, okay. Yeah, I can see how you combine them then. Because, yeah, the world that you're describing in the future for your story is so dystopian. It seems like the powers that are in charge... They're like vying for power. And what you said earlier was really interesting about like how they're trying to tell everyone that, look, we've achieved peace and we're the ones in charge now and blah, blah, blah. But it's really not peace, right? (laughs) Because they just want to fight with each other. And they actually have like whole teams of people in charge of fighting for them. And they're just vying for power. And it's so crazy, but so fascinating. Yeah, it definitely is a fascinating look in a dystopian world where it's mega corporations fighting out for well, apparently no reason. In the game where James originates from, for answer, they are fighting an economic war where they're both allied and at war with each other simultaneously. It's a contradiction that shouldn't exist, but they manage it. They all conduct business with each other coordinately. But they'll also send their armies at each other to go and kill each other. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of stuff that seemed illogical to me. And I thought, wow, what a crazy society (laughs) where, like, the left hand sometimes doesn't know what the right hand is doing or just doesn't care. Because like you said, one minute they're cooperating and then the next minute they're, like, trying to kill each other. So it's super fascinating. The fic that we're talking about today Your fic is called Obligation to Keep, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading. You include really interesting themes here. So I was hoping that you could expound a little bit on the themes of the story. 
What is the story about? What themes and messages were you hoping to communicate here? The simplest explanation for what Obligation to Keep is about is it's about a man who solves problems in the worst way possible. The more complicated summary is that in the aftermath of a devastating war in the 25th century, the most skilled super soldier, Strayed, is accidentally sent back in time and ends up interacting with four seemingly normal high school girls. The result of these interactions end up having dire and devastating consequences for everyone. In the initial 18 chapters, it was mostly just me wanting to see what would happen if something as truly terrible as Stray did interact with the four girls, and how they would react to learning about his true nature and where he comes from. Everything after that is setting up for the 28th chapter and afterward, where I realized I had the chance and opportunity to do a reverse Terminator plot, where the actions affect the future in an unexpected way. From this, I reiterate my theme of solving problems in the worst way possible, but also the idea where there is a cost for everything. The girls become invested in James, and in response, they are now responsible for one of the deadliest people to ever exist. Oh, and I love that. I love that, especially because I really enjoyed getting to know James, your main protagonist. James is essentially an OC character. I understand that you did base him off of a pre-existing links, but essentially you had to kind of build him up from scratch from there. He reminded me a little bit of Fenris from Dragon Age. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but um, he reminded me a little bit of that. You've done a wonderful job here, fleshing James out and really giving us a strong sense of who James is and what makes him tick. So I was wondering what your process was for creating James and what inspirations did you draw from to create his particular personality? James was created over the course of several years. First from the first story I started and then again when I rewrote him before this story. In his initial draft in 2015, he was visually a self-insert character who suffered an unreasonable amount of tragedy. While sad, it was not very interesting, and honestly something done a little too often. As well, only some of his unique abilities had been imagined at that point, and his personality was fairly normal, bland even. When I rewrote the character in 2019, the biggest change was removing the unnecessary tragedy and adding some choices for him to make. Wherein in his draft version, he remembered being a slave and remembered his brother, those were done away with by removing his memory of those events. He still knows he was a slave and that he had a brother, but since he can't remember it, it doesn't really bother him. The choices he then got to make as well involved his own kind. Now, instead of tragically following through the events of Armored Corps for Answer, he chooses to be a terrorist and a monster, hunting and killing his own kind, even his own girlfriend, and enjoying it. One of the biggest inspirations when designing James is a Tom Clancy character named John Clark. Within the Clancy series, John is the deadliest and most efficient assassin in the CIA. Within the series, he wrote the Burke on covert operations, doing some of the worst things in the name of justice and patriotism. James's personal motto is actually a reference to Clark, as John's origin story takes place in a book called Without Remorse. As far as James's personality, that was more difficult to create. It came about through the process of giving him his augments and his abilities. Something that came about that was paramount above all else 
was efficiency and depravity in violence. The idea that so much special attention was given to making him so dangerous that an artificial split personality was introduced, which is why James and Strayed often think and feel differently. Where Strayed is combat perfected, James is what is left over. A person torn apart and exposed to terrible violence, and utterly content to drown in it. For him, anything that doesn't relate to combat and warfare is met with cold calculation or apathetic indifference. His emotions exist in extreme contradiction. He either feels almost nothing at all or is so overwhelmed with emotion that people, be they friends or enemies, get hurt. Something I felt was important as well in designing him was giving him a set of abilities and weaknesses. It is relatively unexplained why all links in Armored Core 4 series are psychic or what that context even means. So I had to give him and other links like him a balanced set of psychic abilities that were worth noting but not overpowered. As far as weaknesses go, he has three, of which only two are probably going to be on display in this story. The first two are that he and his kind are weak to electricity and cannot swim simply because of how they were built. A weakness specific to James, however, is that he is not able to reasonably understand and interpret his own emotions. If he can, he'll ignore them. But there are several moments where he is overwhelmed with emotion and struggles because of it. Yeah, some of my favorite parts were just getting to know James because as you're describing him, he is such a dynamic character. And you did a great job giving him strengths, weaknesses, just really interesting aspects to his personality that made him so fascinating to read about. And I just, especially... Not just him, but when you start introducing other elements into his environment, (laughs) you start introducing these high school girls and all of a sudden, James, with all of his strengths and weaknesses and all of that stuff, and now he's interacting with other people. It was just so interesting. I'm so glad that you went over a little bit of James's background because I did forget to mention that James is modified from what I understand. He's body modified a little bit to make him faster, stronger. He has some pretty interesting healing abilities, like when he gets hurt. And he does have a split personality. So you have James and then you have Strayed. And you're right, like Strayed is more the super soldier personality, right? And then James is more human. And that's probably where all the emotion stuff comes from. (laughs) It's where it's left over, yes. Because one of the things that I just found... So super fascinating about James is you introduce us first to his super soldier personality and his penchant for murder. (laughs) I don't know any other way to put that because like he gets flung from the 25th century over to the year 2017, right? And 2017 obviously is not a dystopian future. So he gets flung into this past tense world, essentially where there is no dystopian war going on. There's no battles between large corporations or anything like that. It's just the regular world that you and me are familiar with. But he still has this like crazy urge inside of him to kill. I wouldn't describe it actually as a crazy urge. It's unsettlingly normal for him. It's more like it's the only thing he knows how to do well. And it feels... Like, it's the right thing for him to do. It's what's familiar to him, right? Right. Yeah, because that's what he's always done, is that type of work. 
So it's funny that when your story first starts, one of the first things he does is he goes and he seeks out the Yakuza so that he can do jobs for the Yakuza because uh, in that way he's able to keep up his skill set and he's able to keep up with this familiar super soldiering that he enjoys doing, right? So we see that. But then he decides to go to high school. I was actually wondering about that blackout. Of all the things James could have done with his life, because he could have done anything, right? Why did he choose to enroll in the local high school? Only because of one reason and one reason alone, and it was the girl next door. (gasps) That's right. That's right, because he moves into the apartment and the girl next door is a high school girl, right? Who kind of befriends him. There's a moment where even through the cold calculation of the machine part of him that's recording it, there's a a very brief moment, and it's kind of towards later chapters that I posted, but he clearly felt something, enough to be thinking about that moment again. And she's going to be definitely a very important part of it as well, even coming through the next couple of chapters. But she was important enough, interesting enough, that he invested himself into her. Ooh, I like how you put that. And that does make so much sense because I do feel like he has this connection with her. Is it Satori? Am I saying that correctly? It's Sayori. Sayori, okay. It's like she's the one of the first people that I think he interacts with when he comes here to the year 2017. And she seems to be the first person who befriends him. And that seems to throw him off. I get the impression that maybe in his world in the 25th century, would that have been abnormal? Like something he's not as familiar with is someone like her trying to befriend him and just wanting to interact with him just for the sake of being friends? The double answer to that is first because he is a super soldier a lynx. There's a pride in what he is. He is a super soldier above all else, so interacting with anyone seemingly normal, a human, would be almost beneath him in most circumstances, save a few. Of the super soldiers, most are similar to him in that they know nothing but combat and war, and so subtle things like friendships or relationships built on interests are not common. Oh, so this is kind of the first time that he's really had a friend. Yes. That makes so much sense. That's actually so super sweet. You know, (laughs) there's something so sweet about that. And that makes so much sense then why he would choose to enroll in the local high school. And it's really cool because the first day of high school, Sayori really wants him to come be a part of the literature club that she's part of. I think, is it just called the literature club? It's never implied to be any other name, but yes. Yeah, yeah. It's just the literature club. And she goes, oh, James, like, I really want you to be a part of my club. It's an awesome club. I love it. There's some other girls that are there, and we would really love to have you. And there's cupcakes. And there's cupcakes. Like, honestly, I would totally go just for the cupcake. (laughs) So James agrees to go with her. And again, I feel like he kind of feels a little bit obligated, in a sense, because She is so kind to him, and he does feel this affinity towards her because of her kindness, and they're starting to become friends and everything. So he agrees to go with her, and he ends up 
a member of this literature club and it's literally just high school girls and then him. He's like the only dude in the club for a long time. And most people would be very envious of that, but... (laughs) Right. Most people would be super envious of that. But he just doesn't give a fuck, you know? Like, (laughs) all of these girls love James. And it's so funny because all of them seem like they have, like, secret designs to try to, like, get James to like them. And they have secret plans of how they're going to get James to ask them out or fall in love with them. (laughs) And James, on some level, knows what they're doing. And he just rebuffs it every time that one of them comes on to him. He just rebuffs it or he rewrites their memories or what have you. It's so super interesting that he's not interested in that, but he is willing to form friendships with these girls. And so a huge chunk of this story is really watching James, the super soldier, interact with these high school girls and participate in this literature club. I will say that the story does start to progress into more serious issues as the chapters get along. So we do start seeing some serious stuff like depression, mental illness, self-harm, things like that. But the lead up to that is really more about James being so out of his element with these girls. You know, I am super fascinated by his decision to participate in this literature club and also his decision to stay in the literature club. Because within the first couple chapters of us seeing James in the club, you understand that James does not have a literature background at all. In fact, I think the poem that he writes for the literature club in the first couple of chapters That's the first thing he's probably ever written in his entire life, right? It's the first thing he's written. Well, the one in chapter three was the first one he wrote on their orders, but he wrote it with something like he would have written in his own life. Right. Which was, it was just completely technical mumbo jumbo. (laughs) Yeah, he writes like a technical (laughs) how-to instead of a poem. (laughs) Yeah, it was about gyroscopes and overheating. It was (laughs) all... Yeah. So you get the impression that he's so unfamiliar with this world of literature and clubs and high school girls. And I am wondering if you could help me understand, like, why does he agree to be in this club and why does he stay? Because he could have just gone the first couple times and then begged off and said, sorry, Sayori, like, I got other stuff to do. Thanks, but no thanks. He doesn't do that. He stays. Why? It's something I haven't really had a lot of chance to elaborate on, but in James's world, loyalty is absolute, but also conditional. There are corporate leaks like May, a character who's introduced later, who only work for one corporation. So her loyalty is absolute to just that company. James, on the other hand, was an independent mercenary. To put that into example today, he could be working for Americans to kill Russians on Monday. But then by Tuesday, he could be working for Russians to kill Americans. So even though the contracts are temporary, while he's on them, the loyalty and resolve is absolute to the extent that he would risk death in order to complete that contract. There is honor and prestige in what he does, and that's what he feels that he should give it his all. When May is first introduced, they both really badly want to kill each other. 
but they don't commit to it until they sign a contract consenting to the attempt to kill each other. For them, there is nothing more honorable than working a contract dutifully and unquestionably. When James joins the literature club, he does so with the same fanaticism that he does his other contracts. His obligation is absolute and unquestioning, and he would lay down his life to complete his objective, as we see him much later in that situation. At the same time, he recognizes the importance in separating his emotions from his work. He forgives two men who killed members of his family, going so far as to work for one of them, because he understands that while under contract, all other concerns are negligible. Either he will complete his contract, or he will die trying. As far as he knows, there is no other option for him. And I loved that part of his personality, because, like you said, that's a very loyal viewpoint to be coming from. But there's also a sense of honor in it, which I was absolutely fascinated with and sort of fell in love with, really, when it came to James. And you could absolutely see in the story that he does, in a sense, consider his participation in the literature club to be like a contract. My question about the whole contract business is his ideas about honor and loyalty and contracts Is that something he would have grown up with in the 25th century? Is that something that was trained into him after he was modified? Like, where does that come from exactly? Well, the meta explanation is that in the Armored Core, at least Armored Core 4 answer, the story takes place over the course of missions, but you can choose which missions you take in each chapter. So if you pick one set, you'll skip another set. And so as far as he knows... That is how the world works, is you pick a contract and you stay loyal to that contract until it is completed. Ah, so this really is just like the way of life for him. This is all he knows, right? Right. It sounds like he really got a good sense of this after he was modified and became a super soldier, right? Right. Got it. Okay. So yeah, yeah, that's kind of all he knows then. And so it it is, it's super funny to see him apply that same reasoning to the literature club because sometimes these girls are asking for some really silly shit. And I say silly just because like I'm almost 40 years old and I think lots of stuff that happens in high school is silly now. But um, I think at one point they want him to help them like decorate the club room for some sort of event. And then there's that one part (laughs) where one of the girls asks him to help her make, what is it, cupcakes or muffins or something like that for the for the club and he's like uh well i don't know anything about baking but a contract is a contract and so he goes along with her and she teaches him how to how to bake it was really sweet that makes so much sense that his familiarity with the concept of contracts and staying loyal to the mission until it's completed would explain absolutely part of the reason why he feels so devoted to this club Although, I do have to ask, while <laughs> while we can definitely see his loyalty initiate from the contract concept, do you think that as the story progresses, there are more emotional reasons why he stays? It's something that I do have hidden at the moment, trying to get in, lead into the next couple of chapters that I'm currently working on. But there is a reason, and I haven't said it. But actually, there is a character who did say it. Go ahead and put yourself when you realize this, but one of the new characters I've added towards the end of it, uh, what I've posted, are AI characters, Nine and Lana. 
And one of those characters called him out on why he's working so hard for this. Ah, see, I was suspecting as I was going along, I was suspecting that even though he makes a big show of trying to keep these girls at arm's length throughout the story, I had a little feeling that maybe under the surface somewhere, perhaps even subconsciously, there was some kind of feelings starting to happen. <laughs> so, Do you think we'll start seeing more of that as the story progresses? Once I get through the current set of chapters, yes. Very briefly, it's mostly not about relationships in that sense, but they will grow closer as a whole group, I will say. Oh, I hope so. Especially, I mean, you would hope so, especially after the events that happened in the most recent chapters <laughs> that you've posted. And I'm sure that we'll get to that here in a bit. But one of my favorite things to do when I'm reading a fan fiction story is I love looking at particularly clever lines in the story because I'm just a geek like that. And I was so pleased to find so many clever lines in this fan fiction. I pulled out one of my favorites, which just happens to be from chapter one. It's in the very first paragraph. And I think this is even one the of very the very first lines. Yeah, it's the very first line, but it grabbed me. And this is how it goes. I'll read it out. Um, it, it goes, hard to explain, did not begin to accurately describe his current situation. Hard to explain was best used for situations involving embarrassing deaths through sexual misadventure, not the centuries-long displacement currently being experienced. That line <laughs> made me laugh out loud. It grabbed my attention immediately. It was so perfect. I was wondering, now that I've told you what my favorite line is, what is your favorite line from this entire story so far? It's difficult to decide, honestly. I have a lot of lines I enjoyed writing. Some of the lines, I do admit, were reused from some of my favorite works in media. An example of that is in Chapter 16, when Strayed kind of insults Sayori by saying, this is going to be very tedious if you remain this dim. That was taken from The Expanse, a show I regularly kind of pull scenes and lines from because it is just such a good show. Although more often than not, I will come up with some very interesting things. I love the funny lines, the dramatic lines, and the sad or horrific lines. The one that keeps me up the most right now at night is Monica's speech at the end of 28. That is a very dark moment, and I loved coming up with that. It was important that that message be direct and absolute so that one specific man would understand it, but vague enough not to expose themselves. Ooh, that's good. I like that a lot. I love that. In fact, Monica is one of my favorite characters in this entire story, and we'll talk about that. But uh, I love that you're, one of your favorite lines is from her. That's amazing. I wanted to talk a little bit about the writing process for this project. I understand from our earlier conversation that Obligation to Keep is your second writing project. You attempted a prior fic in 2015, and it sounds like it was a Ruby fan fiction, which, by the way, excellent choice because I love Ruby. It's awesome. And then it sounds like you switched from that to this current one, and you started in 2020. You told me that your writing for this current project has changed and improved compared to your first fan fiction attempt. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how your writing process has changed and improved. How did you achieve those changes? And do you have any advice for other writers out there who are also wondering how they can improve their writing process? Right. So 
From what my parents have told me, the original story that I wrote was somewhat dull. It did not have the emotional overtones that this one expresses, and explores the characters so slowly that it's not even apparent that they are being explored. James does little in that story when the other main characters are speaking to each other, even though he might have much more to say. It's unfortunately one of those OC on the sidelines kind of a story, and would not have diverged drastically until much later. As I've stated before, one of James's biggest changes was that less bad things happened to him, and he made more choices. Another change is that he favors nonverbal communication. He'll make expressions that imply what he's thinking that other characters read. When May is introduced, she is perceptive enough that she and James can have full conversations with but a few gestures and expressions. Despite what's under his skin, he isn't some emotionless killing machine. It's just that his emotions are very extreme, yet he'll continue to be calm and quiet even in the worst situations. One of the other things I've changed is the scale. This story focuses on James and the four girls for the whole of 19 chapters until a new permanent character is added in chapter 20. The previous story focused first on two, then six, then closer to 40 named characters, all of them with full names and long lines. I don't know if you've noticed, but the Doki girls don't even have last names in this story. Right. I intend to get through the entire story without calling them by their last names. My point being that being able to focus on a small group of people has helped me develop them fully, making them most interesting. Heck, even some of my one-off characters that I end up killing off in the chapter they're introduced have better development than the main characters in my previous story. As far as helping other writers, my advice is to start simple. That's not to say that long, complicated stories with lots of characters and massive plots are bad. I love those stories, and I intend to write some. That being said, if you are new to writing, keep it simple. Focus on as few characters as possible and make them real to the reader. Give them strengths and hopes, but also fears and weaknesses. Oh, I love that you gave that advice about the fears and the weaknesses. I find that the characters I relate to and love the most are the ones that are multidimensional like that, that they have the strengths and the weaknesses and also the fears and the hopes and dreams. And you could absolutely see that you were able to do that successfully here with your OC, James. So I want you to know that you're doing a great job with that because uh, I absolutely found myself really caring about your character, really caring about James. Thank you. You know, I just can't wait to see what happens next. Are there any other things that you could say that you've learned while writing Obligation to Keep? Oh, there's definitely a couple of things. When writing the characters, just showing what they do really isn't enough. Showing how they think and react are just as important, to the point that subtle movements can really sell a scene. I've also learned a lot from writing James. There are times where I've written out scenes and I'll realize, James wouldn't say that. Like, the characters have taken on a life of their own. I've also learned an important thing about foreshadowing, that it's a double-edged sword. Most of the time we use foreshadowing to set up something for the future, but the downside of that is occasionally we can write ourselves into a corner. The upside is, on rare occasion, is that I've ended up stumbling into opportunities and I've exploited them to create new things based on lines I've previously used. Another thing I've had to learn to avoid is the concepts of MacGuffins and Chekhov's guns. I've actually removed a handgun and a notebook from this story when I used them once but couldn't find a point in them being 
in the story anymore. The opposite of that is something like the high-frequency blades that James carries. They're very useful items and have been used for a variety of purposes, even outside of combat. Going along with that question, which parts of this fic were the most difficult to write for you, and why were they so difficult? There are two things I have difficulty writing in this story. Battle scenes and sad moments. Battles are a lot more complicated than I thought, and for the current set of chapters I'm working on, I have three or four different documents filled to the brim with just notes documenting either every bullet fired in a battle to every unit lost, and also the kind of equipment that they were using. The sad scenes I occasionally write are difficult because I can literally not stop crying as I write. When I write, I play out the scene in my head like a movie, and I'll watch it play out and then try to transcribe what I'm seeing. I'll often be devastated by what I put these characters through. As much pain and despair as I've put them through, though, you have to realize I care for each of them deeply. I've written for them so long now that I know their thoughts and how they would react, so hurting them is like hurting myself at times. Is there a specific ritual or thing that you do to get yourself into that headspace to be able to write a sad story? Or can you just kind of turn it on and off when you need to, when a, when a sad scene is coming up? Basically, my process for writing a sad scene is I'll just start uncontrollably crying through it until I get through it. Ah, and that kind of puts you in that headspace where you yeah. can kind of go there. And, <laughs> oh my goodness. That's so interesting. You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me so much of method acting where you just get so into it, right? That's really, really cool. Yeah, you can tell that there's a lot of heart and emotion in the sad scenes in this story. So I love that. I also love that the story has started to take some dark, serious turns, which again, I love. I love dark elements to stories. I find it so interesting. I am curious to know what you envisioned for this fic going forward, because the fic kind of started out as James's journey interacting with these high school girls after they have discovered who James is and they understand now he's from the 25th century. Now things are starting to get very serious and very real. I am kind of just wondering what you envisioned for the story going forward. So the plan I have for this story is that it's going to end hopefully by chapter 50. Once we get through this current arc regarding Sayori and her current situation, the story will enter a brief lull for maybe about four chapters to set up the final arc, which ends shortly before the story. I have another document where I outline this, and based on my experience so far, I should be able to accomplish that. I'm currently working on chapter 33, and this is probably the hardest chapter to write simply because it's the end of an arc and there are so many different elements to take care of in multiple places simultaneously. I have a pretty good idea of what I'm doing with the characters and the kind of drama that will come about. I have plans for adding a couple of new characters, roughly by chapter 40, and I've actually already introduced two very important characters, being the AIs Zero Nine and Lana, since they are Armored Core characters who end up becoming very influential later on. Oh, that's so cool. It sounds like you have a really good grasp of where you want to take the story, how many chapters it's going to take to get there, and the different arcs and different things that you have planned for these characters. So that's really great. I'm really glad to hear that there's a plan there. 
and everything. So we'll be looking forward to that. Absolutely. I also want to talk a little bit about Monica (laughs) as a character here. And I had some questions for you about her. Monica's so interesting because, you know, the way that she starts out in this story, I found fascinating. I'm not sure if this is canon for Doki Doki Club, but we find out early on in the story that Monica, well, she's the leader, first of all, of the literature club at the high school, but she (laughs) has said some unkind things to Sayori that were highly inappropriate, right? And so um, at some point, James actually has to call her out on that and say, hey, like, that was really uncool that you said that to my friend. And so she kind of is a little bit villainous throughout the story just because of that. But she does seem to redeem herself after that. And one of the things that I found so cool about this story is there is a part that is kind of towards some of the more recent chapters that you've posted where we find out that James is the last member of his super soldier unit called Orca. Right. And James ends up choosing Monica to be the new leader, the commander of Orca, which I thought was a fascinating choice. I love that, first of all, because like I used to fantasize when I was you know younger about being is big, strong commander of some military unit that just seemed really cool and fascinating to me. So Monica's a little bit of a hero for me because <laughs> she gets to step into that role. And I am wondering, because I'm so curious, why did James choose Monica for that role when she has no prior military experience? Why didn't he choose to fill that role himself? Because he's the most qualified. So the simplest reason is that he is not qualified, believe it or not. Links themselves are considered weapons. So he's always had to take orders from somebody else, be that for a mission or for how he plots out his life. For the most part, somebody else has always stepped in and said, you should be doing these kind of missions or you have these options to take. So in his society, per se, Links do not normally lead stuff, with very few exceptions. I think maybe two. And so he has the understanding that he is not qualified to be a leader. He is qualified to be a soldier, the best soldier even, but he is not meant to lead. And so he looks to Monica for that because Monica is already a leader and he has already taken some advice from her and he continues to be loyal to the literature club. So he has enough respect for her for that. Oh, that makes so much more sense. Although that's kind of sad in a way. Just because he doesn't think that he can doesn't mean that he can't. There are so many moments in the story where he's a wonderful leader. He knows what to do. He is quick on his feet. He saves the day so many times in this story. Like He honestly would make a great leader. So the fact that he feels like he can't. I honestly have to disagree with that. You Uh, think so? In 26, he bum rushes right into a situation, and he ends up in a very poor and sorry state. He didn't really have a plan other than go there right now and cause me chaos. (laughs) True. That's true. That's true. But, like, there are other times, though, 
I think there's a scene in there somewhere where the girls are in danger, right? And he is really good at being able to get in and get out and take care of bad guys. Or like, remember in those scenes when those guys wanted to join the literature club so they could harass the girls and stuff? That wasn't so much a leading situation, though, I felt for him. It was more of a reacting appropriately is more the sense. Because he knew they were interested in the girls only for sexual reasons. True, yeah. And he didn't raise a finger until they started to misbehave. Ah, but see, when the time came, I felt like he kind of just stepped right up and was like, well, I'll take care of this. <laughs> he just but he, even up. then, he still listens to Monica. True. Because she tells him not to kill anybody. Yes. Yes. And okay. He, he kind of breaks the rule a little bit, but he does listen to her about that. Oh, no, you are absolutely right. He is a good problem solver. Maybe that's more appropriate to say, right? He's a yeah, good I problem solver. I feel definitely. But definitely. he definitely does need, I guess, to take some direction from someone else because he just doesn't see himself as appropriately qualified to be a leader himself. So, okay, that makes so much more sense. You know, I'm so impressed with Monica just because she's 18, right? She's like right. really young. And she just steps right into this commander role. Like, she's like, yeah, no problem. She steps right in. She starts studying the, you know, files that the last commander left behind. She really tries to do her homework and just kind of step into the shoes of the commander. And I was so impressed by that. The role that she is placed in has some really, really serious consequences because not long after she becomes leader of Orca, she's faced with a really huge decision that has terrible consequences. Right. So one of the reasons that she does try and take it so seriously is because she knows she is responsible for James. There's a moment in Chapter 18 where they did want to stop him to turn him in for the murders he'd committed, but he's simply too dangerous to leave unattended. She needed to be responsible for him. And in this case, that meant taking the role of Commander of Orca somewhat more seriously. That's actually really interesting because we see the honor and the loyalty from James's side, but we also get to see those types of qualities in Monica as well. Maybe that's why I like her so much. I don't know. <laughs> I think it also because she has changed a lot. She was very, very selfish in those first couple of chapters, even after James had confronted her, but she did realize what she did wrong. And that it was wrong beyond measure and that she did need to improve and she did need to be a better person. Yes, and I'm so glad that you brought that up because you're right. This story has really incredible character development for Monica as well as for James because you're right. Like she was really kind of self-centered, right? <laughs> and kind of trying to be popular and all that stuff. And you really do see her progression through the story, and especially as she steps into her role as the new commander of Orca. So I'm actually really excited to see where Monica goes in her story arc and the different things that she ends up doing, because she absolutely has a lot of responsibility on her shoulder at this point, because the story is getting really serious now. Yes, at least the last couple of chapters have implied that Monica is not wholly responsible for the worst possible outcome that could have come about, but it was on her order that one of the worst possible things they could have done happened. And now everything has changed. It was pretty well implied that there is no hope. There is no 
goodness left. They can only try and complete this objective, and that is the only hope that they have anymore, is all their hope is on one objective and nothing else. And we do see that a little bit in 29-2, where she has that nightmare. Yeah, that nightmare scene was so fascinating. I was kind of glad it was a nightmare because it was like so horrible. But it is so interesting to me that she's so young and she has all of this responsibility. And now she has to live for the rest of her life with the consequences of these choices that she's making. You've done a tremendous job presenting us with all of these really heavy concepts. And I just I'm, I'm just loving it so much. I'm very glad. <laughs> now, switching gears here just a little bit, you found me on the R Fanfiction Reddit page. So we are both members of that community online. So you probably see a lot of the same posts there that I do. A couple of months ago, someone posted some thoughts about fanfiction writers comparing their work to others and feeling discouraged when they would compare their fanfiction works to other writers' fanfiction works. And I think that the OP sentiments about that are pretty common among writers and among artists in general, honestly, because I feel like all artists, all producers, we tend to compare our work to others. And I was just wondering, how would you respond to that post that came out a bit ago about comparing work to others. What would you say about how discouraged it made them feel when they compare their work to others? And I was wondering how you would have responded to that. I could say that I really emphasized with uh, what I read from that post. Well, that's because I also follow several really incredible fiction myself. And instead of being discouraged, though, I would say that you should be inspired by their achievements. When I first started my first story, I planned to do the same as everyone else, and that was for James to meet the main cast of Ruby and for everyone to become best friends, so to speak. But then I read a crossover fan fiction, and I'll speak more of that a little bit, but it, even with its less than average grammar, it still had a very subversive and reasonable premise that I was inspired to change the entire plot of that first story and continue to use themes from it to help me with this one. Even though it's not fan fiction, another media of work that is really amazing, The Expanse, it showed me how to make much more dramatic character moments with even just a few words or gestures. To reiterate that, I would say that instead of being disheartened, be inspired. Don't feel guilty for taking another person's idea, since so many of the stories we tell now have been told over and over again throughout history. Example of that is the, the story of the fall of Troy, one of the oldest stories we have from ancient Greek. It's arguably, it's an Avengers story. It's because it's all the heroes, they get together to, to fight in some grand war. It's all happened before. I love that. And I love that perspective that you bring us, that when we are confronted with other people's works, because I mean, the reality is that as creators, there's always going to be someone better than us, right? Always, always, always. But we get to choose how we react to that, right? I right. love how you have reminded us about that, that we get to choose how we react to that. We can choose to be devastated and discouraged, or we can choose to be inspired. I choose inspired, <laughs> and I'm glad that right. you do too. That's awesome. So speaking of other people's works, I understand that you have a couple of other writers' fan fiction works that you wanted to talk about really quick as we close out for the day. Yes, there's one of the first one I wanted to mention 
that's the one that really changed things for me that made me realize I could do something different from other people. And it was so influential, I even developed some of James from it. The Longest Hunt by Not Fiction is a Bloodborne Ruby crossover, and its main character, Sybil, is extremely similar to James in many ways. With the only real difference, honestly, is that Sybil gets his powers and strength from cursed blood and a pact with a Cthulhu-like god. My headcanon is that James and Sybil are distant cousins, considering that they look similar in spite of a technological difference of more than 600 years. The only really downside to this story is that it is on hiatus, pending a rewrite, so I am eagerly awaiting to see how that story comes about. Here We Go Again by 15-0 is a self-insert fanfic from the Japanese anime Gate. To briefly explain, Gate is a show where modern-day Japan is invaded by pseudo-Roman Empire from a fantasy world and the Japanese used their superior technology to liberate that said fantasy world. What the author did in this fic was add a division of U.S. Marines to aid the Japanese in their invasion, with the main characters being the crew of an Abrams main battle tank. What's interesting about this fic is that the author is a former U.S. Marine and Afghan war veteran. No kidding. Yeah. And the characters are based off of real people he served with. They're done exceptionally well, uh, as they're all 20-something-year-olds who go from goofing off and being vulgar and crude to professional soldiers, and then to being just simply lost and surprised by the circumstances, all at the snap of a finger. Oh, that sounds fantastic. All the Stars by Blue Way is a Halo Mass Effect crossover, wherein a few million covenants, a Spartan, and an ODST get thrown into the Mass Effect universe. It's fascinating to watch as the fanatical covenant is forced to be civil and diplomatic with the very race they swore to destroy, based on the fact that the objects of their faith are out of reach, so to say. As well, seeing a Spartan taken out of combat and forced to be a real person for once is both inspiring and disheartening, though seeing everyone react to her size and combat prowess is entertaining. Code Geass, the Prepared Rebellion, by Seer King is the plot of Code Geass with the caveat that the main character, Lelouch, is infinitely more patient and careful than he is in the original anime. As well, the story covers many aspects, angles, and solutions that the show either failed to consider or glossed over in significance, such as possible character interactions and planning options. As an example, Lelouch in the show is shown to have no preparations for his rebellion, against his former homeland until the show actually starts, whereas in the fanfic, he spends the entirety of the seven years he is assumed dead, amassing a not inconsiderable amount of wealth and resources. Another example is that his maid, who in the show ends up working for his alter ego by accident nearly halfway through, starts this story as his first and most loyal supporter. Lastly, the show makes it seem like Lelouch helps liberate Japan selfishly, which is not entirely inaccurate. In the fic, however, he feels he has a moral obligation to pay Japan back for the assistance it provided him during his exile, and he is disheartened by the conditions of post-invasion Japan, going so far as to acquire relics significant to Japanese culture to keep them safe, or even helping individual Japanese people when they are being abused by the system. Oh, that's awesome. All of those sound really, really interesting. Thank you for sharing those with us. We'll make sure that the links to all of those fan fictions do end up in the show notes in case anybody wants to check them out. Those are all of the questions that I have for you today. Blackout42, do you have any last words for us? Only that you should be hopefully looking forward to what comes next. It's going to be a 
a lot of action, a lot of surprises, and hopefully an ending that will be very appreciated. Oh, that's perfect. And so good to hear. I can't wait. I have loved your story and I can't wait to see how it ends. So that'll be fantastic. Blackout 42. Thank you so much for joining us today. Check out his story on AO3 and give him some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram at fanficmaverick, and I can also be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling. <laughs>